Hi, and welcome to Top in Tech. This week, it's the latest in our monthly series of interviews with leading thinkers and thought leaders on tech policy globally. And one topic we have not covered extensively on the podcast so far is health tech and the role of digitization and data platforms in health systems. So I'm delighted that here to correct this is Matthew Swindles, who has a wealth of experience to draw on. He's got experience in the UK's National Health Service at the national level, both as a deputy CEO of the NHS England and a previous role as a chief information officer of the NHS more broadly. Indeed, he was the first to serve in that role. He's also got experience at a local level of health provision in England. He's currently chair of the Northwest London Acute Provider Collaborative, which includes Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust and many others. He's worked in government as a principal advisor on healthcare policy in the cabinet office, and he's also spent several years as a senior vice president at health IT provider Cerner, which is now owned by Oracle. Last but not least, Matthew is also a senior advisor to Global Council. So welcome, Matthew. There's two basic elements that I'd like us to get into. The first is the current state of the UK's health tech sector and the extent to which it is a reflection of progress in digitization of the National Health Service itself. The second is to get your take on where things might head under a future Labour government when there's an election next year and their ability and their political capacity to make progress in this area particularly against the backdrop of huge changes we're seeing at the moment with artificial intelligence and generative AI and large language models. So to start with the state of the health tech sector, to give that a little bit more context in the sort of last, what, five, six years that I've followed debates in and around the deployment of technology in the UK healthcare sector, it's often been said that the UK has a clear competitive advantage, at least vis-a-vis the US, because it has such a centralized system with the National Health Service, and it provides a scale where innovative technologies and software can be deployed. And indeed, if we think about artificial intelligence, large amounts of data potentially where such systems could be trained. But we've heard that for a long time. And is it fair to say that the promise of health tech in that regard has somewhat disappointed, particularly as we start to see names in the UK health tech scene. So we've seen Babylon has been through turbulence recently. Benevolent AI had high profile job cuts. We've even seen others like DeepMind having removed themselves from healthcare directly. So it'd be great to just start off and get your take on on where things stand. I think there is a bit of a myth which perpetrates through into the commercial sector that the NHS is a single system. It's probably safer to think of the NHS as a flotilla of a thousand boats who are broadly speaking sailing in the same direction. At moments of war, like during COVID, uh, instruction from the centre was carried out flawlessly through the whole of the system because people understood that the rules had changed. Uh, Hence, the rollout of the vaccine technology was flawless. But in normal times, the purchase of a system and the adoption of systems are quite different things. And so as you go all the way back to the 2000s and the National Programme for IT, systems were purchased at the centre, but 
the pull from users didn't actually make the rollout successful. So, so anybody who's trying to do business in the NHS, there are advantages that we can standardize the rules, we can create incentives, you can point people in the right direction. But the the change model is a complex one. It's not the same as adoption in a completely fragmented system like the American system, but it isn't a, it isn't a command and control system where you can just expect an instruction to come down from the centre and every doctor to agree to be using the technology that's rolled out. So so in part some of the um, the failures that, that we've seen in healthcare technology have been, in a way, a category error in the question that people have been asking, which is, well, it's been said that this should be the system. Why isn't everybody using it? You still have to go out and sell it to the users and create that sort of pull. So uh, so, so the NHS does have a big advantage um, in its potential, but underestimating the complexity of rolling that out, I, I think, is a mistake. I think the and maybe we should talk about them some more but some of the issues around babylon are probably not to do with the nhs and more to do with the operating so model that they chose it's interesting that you you directly link the health of the health tech sector with with the nhs and with the healthcare service and that by the sounds of it there is that relationship embryonic relationship between the two of them that needs the one will support the other essentially because ultimately if you're in the health tech scene you're going to be selling into the national healthcare service so i guess that what follows on there is then the question around where is where is the state of play at the moment within the digitization and data-led projects within the nhs and giving a sort of high level view you mentioned the covid experience major successes with some of the data platforms at the center. Most obviously we saw that with the vaccine rollouts, but also in other areas, eventually around ventilators and other areas where the government did have a central control and command type approach that, that, that we've seen was successful. But at the same time, we had this sort of huge embarrassments with track and trace and endless stories in the media about how much that was costing or was going to cost. And more broadly, as we look at it, what, two-ish years on from the sort of last height of the pandemic, it doesn't feel necessarily like there's been a great leap forward building on some of those successes then. Is that your your sense? And, and can we attribute that to what you say, that we've reverted to the mode whereby a lot of the digitization efforts are led at local and regional level rather than a centralized approach? Yeah, so uh, I think that the NHS has dropped the ball post COVID around technology in a, in a, in a very significant way, um, both on the operating environment, particularly for the life sciences industry. There were a small number of things that we got right during COVID. Some of them were around the technology. Some of them were around the the governance and the bureaucratic landscape. So what was unusual in or unique in COVID is that our regulators moved with agility and were focused on getting trials up and running rather than the bureaucracy of the approval of a trial. The NHS were guided by its chief executive to say every patient who's in an NHS hospital should be part of a trial. And the technology was put in place, which had two advantages. One is it worked, and that was a, that made adoption a lot easier. It was, it was a rare example of something that actually worked out of the box, and so was, um, and it addressed the specific question that the NHS needed to ask. So, 
those things came together and could have been carried forward post-COVID and we can see all across the NHS drifting back into the same bureaucratic regulatory landscape, the same opting into innovation and development is something that NHS hospitals do and primary care does when it's got when, when it has spare time, which is never. And the technology debate um, has gone back into, but we've already built one of those. Why can't we use the one that we built ourselves? Now, I think that the NHS is trying to resolve that, the technology piece of that, with its federated data platform procurement that's running at the moment. And that is built very much off of the model that was adopted during COVID of let's have one platform and build a a number of applications on it, but also on, uh, I think, the environment that says there are things you can standardise from the centre of which I think a technology platform is one, and there are things you can't standardise from the centre, like all of the solutions that people will use. So can you create an environment which is a great place for multiple organisations to come and innovate on and take out some of the backlog of bureaucracy and effort in order to get at the data? Because the NHS talks frequently as a single unified system with a single unified parent, joined up data. We ought to be the best place in the world to be doing clinical research and we've never ever made that actually true it only really exists as a powerpoint slide the reality of any researcher coming into the nhs is it's multiple clearance processes to get access to really dirty data which they which they then have to spend months turning into research ready data we could resolve that in 12 months if we put our mind to it i i, I think we are starting to take steps in that that direction but you've uh, you've got to say that both the the language of John Bell over the last 10 years about the potential for the NHS has never converted into real action. And the opportunity that was created around COVID is in danger of being dropped altogether. I think it's not too late to pull that back, but it is it is a difficult environment. And the opportunities around how you train AI are a massive new opportunity for the NHS, and both in, in terms of the adoption of technology, but also where is it you would want to go to train your technology? And we see that with a number of really smart companies choosing to base themselves in London rather than in other parts of Europe and moving big development teams out to the US. Just to pause but, on because one there is a element potential you here. mentioned earlier there, Matthew, which was around the drug approval, medical approval processes in, in the UK and how, well, I just think back to that time during the COVID pandemic when total amateurs like me all became experts in opining on the approval processes of of the UK, the EU, the US and various other countries around the world as we saw AstraZeneca's drug in in approval process and then Pfizer and Moderna and so on and so forth. So we're all very familiar with with what happened then and how it was accelerated. Very much less familiar about what's happened since. Is the problem here that during the pandemic – the regulators were giving significant resources and capacity which allowed them to fast track in a way which has been withdrawn now? Or is it something else that is the the holdup, just simply reversion to the norm of pre-pandemic? So there's two possible answers to that, and it depends which, which way you look at it. So one answer, and I'd say primarily the regulator's answer is, our people only had to do one thing. You know, we, we have hundreds and hundreds of uh, uh, requests coming in all of the time and we have to juggle them all and when there was only covid we were able to streamline all of our processes drive those through and give a really slick service um, if that was the truth if that was the whole of the truth then the problems that we have now in reverting back to the norm would simply be a workforce question well you're 
if it's three times if you if three times as many people would make the whole of our life sciences regulatory industry as effective as it was during covid then that's a really cheap way of getting a wildly effective life sciences industry but it's not that that's definitely part of it but the other part of it is that we streamline the processes so that if you talk to researchers, they're talking about coming from hundreds of pages documents to get a trial approved to tens of pages uh, to get to get a trial approved. And they're saying there is nothing in the missing hundreds of pages which was useful. You know that, that and, and we've drifted back into that very risk averse, very paper trail dependent. We've also, I think, started to drift back into a, a sort of bureaucratic process of my job is to review this form and pass it on to the next person, rather than my job is to get this trial up and running. And, and, and we need that sort of cultural change within our regulatory industry, which is on the one hand, they are protecting the public, but on the other hand, their job is to get researchers up and flying, not simply find reasons to move the piece of paper down the trail. So, so I think we have a cultural issue, we have a person issue, and we have a set of rules issue, all of which are solvable, but we have drifted back towards the status quo. And it's deeply frustrating because I didn't think we would. To move on to the sort of the look ahead part of the discussion and around what Labour may or may not do, clearly that's one area that you personally think they should really be taking a, a close look at when they, or if they enter power at the next general election, likely to be towards the back end of next year. But the context for the Labour government more broadly is pretty obvious now and it has many implications for the discussion we're having today. Not much fiscal wriggle room. There isn't much money left, etc., etc. Labour, Rachel Reeves, Shadow Chancellor, has been quite clear that she's going to be pretty disciplined about this. And part of that is pre-election positioning. But I think she and Keir Starmer do genuinely mean that. And at least in the opening few years, will be pretty tight in how they run public spending. There's not much money, but we also have a desperate need to improve public services, healthcare most obviously, where we have all sorts of delays in the provision of services that we've seen across the country at the moment. And Labour's already talking about technology in these terms and how it can be used as a potential solution, i.e. not having to spend much money, but improving the productivity and efficiency of services and thereby improving the healthcare service in that way. Be interesting to get your take on some of this because there are a number of key challenges which complicate that headline message, which I think most people would probably agree with. But then once you start to think about what that comes up against, it's less obvious and straightforward. So to throw the obvious one at you here, privacy and confidentiality has been the bane of, of these debates for a very long time. How to allow for a uniformity in or a provision of centralized or decentralized systems that protect patient confidentiality in a way which public is comfortable with. So Labour's now talking about how, I think it was Keir Starmer said, that we need to catch up with public attitudes about data sharing, implying that the public's actually more comfortable than perhaps the, po the policy debate is around the usage of patient data for healthcare provision. But we've seen this before, haven't we? There was care.data, all sorts beforehand. Is there any reason to really think that under a Labour government we're going to see a far more efficient digitization of patient records and so on and so forth that would improve the efficiency and I suppose transparency of healthcare provision in a way in which we haven't seen before. Yes I think the debate has moved on and I think to an extent it has moved on for both parties both political parties so there is definitely an element to which the debate around privacy is one that is being driven by 
activist and by certain parts of the media and it is out of it is out of sync with with what the general public thinks so on the whole the public are more irritated by the fact that when they go to different parts of the nhs the records that they provided in one place isn't available in another and don't understand why that's not being being shared they're much more concerned about that than they are um, uh, uh, the uh, about the idea that data is aggregated and, and linked, so so I think we have a mismatch in, in people's perceptions of what's going on versus what's what's actually happening. That said, if you get privacy and confidentiality wrong, and you suddenly had a a, a, a significant breakdown in the, in those things, it it would set back technology by ten years. So you can't be complacent about it, but you shouldn't be frightened of it as an issue as an issue and i think that some of the learning has been taken out of this so there was a drive the previous two attempts that have been that have failed significantly were you could categorize them as the giant nhs black box of data no one knows what you've got what you're holding on me no one knows what you're using it for some really dumb stuff done by the center in terms of Selling hard disks full of data to, to to pharma companies and also all sorts of stuff, which is which were just sort of destined to wind people up into a was a justifiable frenzy. I think we're hearing different things now in in, in two times. One one is the federated data platform. I think the F the federated part of it is a really big step forward to say actually data should reside where it was gathered with the clinicians who gathered it on behalf of the patients who were being treated in those places. And it should only be linked and shared for a purpose. So so that data platform's ambition isn't to take everybody's medical records and bang them together into one national record, but to say if there is a purpose for it then we will link it and move it but if there isn't a purpose for it then it stays where it lives it's federated back into hospitals and gp and gp practice and i think that is a mindset shift partly enabled by the fact that technology can now support that in the way that it couldn't 10 and 20 years ago i think the other bit is around transparency and this is this is an area where politicians have been very much over the last 20 years driving this issue and they've been held back by the NHS rather than the other way around. And the idea that I should be able to see my medical record in its complete form and I shouldn't be patronised by some professional saying, well, I won't understand it. Well, write it in a form I will do. Or let me give it to someone to look at for me. So I should be able to see what you're holding on my behalf. I should be able to see how it's been used. So, And I should be able to consent as they do in the beginning, I mean, I, I think say foothills rather than salt, but beginning in Australia to say, through my app, I can consent for, yes, my data can be used for research or not. Yes, my data can be used for research for conditions that I have, but not for conditions that I don't have, or, yeah, you can, or no, I don't want it to be. But also, if I'm consenting for it, which is what I would choose to do, I'd like to be able to go into my NHS app and see who's accessed my data in its identifiable form so I can ask a question about it. Equally, I can ask a question why a doctor in a hospital I've never been to has seen my record. And if the answer is we asked them for a second opinion and they were part of a multidisciplinary team, perfect. And if it's we've no idea why that person logged in and accessed your records, well, let's hold the individuals to account for their behaviour. So I think that transparency story is absolutely critical to this. If people know what data we're holding, they know how their bit is being used, and they can audit for themselves, then the the small number of people who will bother to go and check will hold the record safe on behalf of everybody. And so I do think we're having a change in the dynamic going on at this moment. It's being driven by 
this government, but it's been picked up very much. I think part of the bravery that you're seeing from the opposition is not to score cheap political points attacking this Secretary of State for trying to for- drive forward the digital agenda. It will be easy for West Streeting to take pot shots at Steve Barclay, and I think it is noticeable that he's not because he knows that if Steve Barclay doesn't land this data stuff, if he gets to become this West Streeting Secretary of State in 18 months' time, he's going to have to start that journey all over again. So I think there is a, a maturity about this debate just at this moment in time, which we've so not seen for a while. I suppose grounds for hope. I guess the only point that just sort of rings out in my mind throughout is just it does require political capital over time. So it will require the controversies that you described. So you, you just described it as activist in, in certain sections of the media. They also tend to be from the side of the political spectrum that the Labour Party is also at, which their own activists and members and others will, will listen to. So it does require where streeting, the junior ministers or whoever's going to be in the take that portfolio when Labour enter government, if they enter government, to have that political strength i guess to see it through despite those barbs i guess the sort of in the in the past not only are the uh, perhaps on the design of what governments were trying to do or the nhs was trying to do not right but also if if you don't have the political willpower to fully see it through then then it can easily get get plagued by such controversies let's on the Labour's five missions plan they published I think it was last week Matthew there's also lots in there about procurement and again it all sounds remarkably sensible a clear centralized direction for the procurement of data systems produce a plan for procurement adoption and spread of technologies and reduce unnecessary bureaucracy all sounds very agreeable to me in principle but again there's a number of clear quite controversial policy divides and tensions which underlie that. The first you'd pull out would be, say, the the debate around buy versus build, the extent to which the NHS tries to develop its own digital platforms and services or whether it buys in the technology from providers. And obviously the role of private companies in the NHS is one that has been controversial for years, for years, for years. And particularly when we're talking about technology, it tends to be that a lot of those companies are American and that has a particular spice to it when we think about Google DeepMind, as it was called, and Royal Free, and the, the, the coverage that that received certainly had a hint around the Americanism of the company behind it that was feeding the debate. So for Labour in particular, again, that seems like quite a hard sell and requiring a lot of political capital. So where, where do you see on, on where, where Labour's plans fit into that debate around procurement? Yeah, so... The buy versus build in the technology space is a hot topic around the world and particularly in public services. The NHS's track record of building stuff in-house is appalling. It runs to tens of millions of pounds worth of nothing ever being delivered. So buying solutions that already work is proven now within the NHS to be more successful than stuff we've tried to build at at the centre. And I'd hold up test and trace versus the, the vaccine rollout, the taking of an existing platform, the vaccine rollout and configuring it to do what needed to be done, which was one of the biggest successes that NHS technology has ever had. And test and trace, let's employ a load of consultants and build our own thing. Complete catastrophe. So 
if we didn't learn from that, we're never going to learn from anything. But but if you look around the world, if you if you take electronic medical records, if you go back ten years, some of the biggest health systems in America were building their own systems. Johns Hopkins, Intermountain Health, the Department of Defense, the Veterans Administration, all of them have come across onto commercial solutions because the cost of keeping up with where commercial solutions was just became prohibitive. So the idea that we could pop up and write our own electronic medical record system when the Department of Defense and the Veterans Administration can't afford it is frankly ludicrous. So we need to go with solutions that are proven. So therefore, the buy versus build question becomes a, well, if we're going to buy solutions that already work, how do we create an environment in the UK where the buying already working systems are buying UK systems or systems where the development is happening in the UK and it's creating jobs in the UK and, and, and career opportunities and taxpayers in the UK. And we should be having that conversation, not could we nationalise software development. It should be how do we how do we use the opportunities of our military and our education system and our health system to create a vibrant environment where people can build commercially here, sell to the NHS and use that as a platform to sell around the world. That's where the, the debate ought, ought to be. And some of the companies behind that are going to be American because they have created those solutions. But uh, I think it's foolhardy to think that 27 smart people sat in a room employed by the government are going to be able to solve what 27,000 people have been doing for 30 years with a big company. Uh, so what's the implication uh, of that, in then, Matthew? Is it that... We think that, a, let's say, West, Labour win the election, West Streeting's the Secretary of State. Is your take that where Labour policy might go is less towards outward hostility to US providers? They'll, they'll accept, broadly speaking, the buy argument rather than the build argument. But it might be trying to insist on various conditions or some way, shape, or form, and that the contrib- economic contribution of those contracts is localized, even if the company more broadly is international? I think that's the opportunity. I think whether it's creating a an infrastructure and a potential to do business in the UK, which allows small and medium-sized innovative organizations to choose to do that in the UK, and how we create those development hothouses within the NHS as a driver of industry, or it's the opening up of the NHS's data for the life sciences industry, but let's not do what's happening with the Grail study, which where the data is going back to California to be analysed. Let's say here is a huge opportunity, and it should be a huge opportunity for the big pharma industry companies to be partnering with our universities to base themselves, build out the skill set in the UK to get access to to get access to our data, and, and I think it requires a more innovative version of uh, of an industrial strategy to leverage uh, the NHS as a driver of uh, 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 of an industrial transformation. And when you go into AI and generative AI, those opportunities are it, it it's the next it's the next world. If you as we have digitized hospitals using electronic medical records and GP surgeries, and we're we're, we're probably a hundred percent done on the old generation of GP practice electronically. If we at some point we're going to need to start the new generation in hospitals, we're probably at a third or halfway through digitizing. But the actual capturing of data electronically, rather than writing it in a paper record, is a pretty prosaic thing. It's it, it's not. 
It, it's not that interesting, and it's consuming huge amounts of clinical time. To uh, some studies say, doctors and nurses spending half of their time documenting what they're doing. The chance for generative AI to start to support the documentation area if we could do that first in the uk it'll sell around the world because we know we need to get digitized content because you can't get onto all of the other exciting stuff until you digitize the content but at the moment we have turned that into an enormous burden on our most skilled talent and our most shorted work high shortage workforce which is our doctors nurses pharmacists midwives um, physiotherapists now documenting in, into IT in quite a clunky old way. Whilst the AI conversation is all, is all in the space of, well, will robots diagnose my cancer? And is there going to be a doctor in the solution? One will actually be the tools to be able to turn our clinical staff back to facing the patient and away from facing their keyboard. So let's and that, get into and that, that AI debate there, Matthew, because... I mean, there was media reports of Rishi Sunak basically saying AI was going to sort out the healthcare service. And I saw some quotes from Amanda Pritchard, who's obviously in charge of the NHS in England, saying not quite as ambitious as that, but but not far off. There's a lot of hope and optimism about what it can do to transform diagnostics, but also help that basic provision of services that you've just described by freeing up the workforce. But you also said earlier that any researcher who has to get involved with the NHS gets caught in these multiple clearance procedures and this dirty data, and it's very difficult to, to, to engage with the data layer within the NHS and get that clean training data. And obviously, large language models, generative AI, rest on vast quantities of training data. So do we have that in place, do you think, in order to have this AI revolution or should we be more cautious about the role that AI will play in the next five to 10 years and able to transform the NHS? Yeah, we need to avoid getting overexcited about this because AI has some huge opportunities, some of which will come through in the next five to 10 years, but we aren't going to change the way we deliver healthcare profoundly through that, I don't, I don't think so. To, to take a question in pieces, the huge opportunity of AI to support frontline clinicians in documenting care, creating cleaner data within our data sets, which makes it more useful for to train the next generation of language of language modules. Um, it's kind of phase one. We do have some areas where there are huge clean volumes of clean data, which I'm slightly surprised that we've not made as much progress as we might, particularly in the in, in the diagnostic imaging area where we have very high resolution images. We also know what the diagnoses were and therefore we could open that up for as a training as a training platform but in terms of um, uh, ai replacing your doctor i think if we can use ai to stream better to guide that would be great but uh, we've not really resolved the problem of balance of risk so if you look at it in the automotive industry the challenge of whether a self-driving car needs to be a better driver than the average driver on the road today or whether it needs to be perfect is one that's not been resolved perfect is unachievable um, but a self-driving car that has one accident will be held to a whole lot higher standards than the number of accidents that are going on on our roads all day every day so you apply that in the medical space and we know that every day 
thousands of errors are being made across GP surgeries and hospitals by humans doing the best they can, given the information that they have at their, 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 their disposal. Creating technology which makes fewer mistakes than the NHS does on average is probably not a very high bar. Whether the public is ready to accept that, you know, sometimes it gets it wrong, you know, it is not, I don't think we're anywhere near the public being ready for the, I'm really sorry, the robot removed the wrong kidney, but you know what? X times a year, surgeons with a scalpel remove the wrong kidney, you know, that, that, so, uh, that, that's, so the, the replacing of the human is a really long way away. The use of AI to support decision-making is really close if we let it and the opportunity to allow the use of the NHS's data set or to use the NHS's data set to create anonymized synthetic data sets which you can train AI on I think is a massive opportunity and we're held back by dumb stuff like how do we charge for it and we kind of need to break through that and stop worrying about whether we should be selling packets of data for £20,000 a throw when we're running a £100 billion business. We should be focusing on what does it mean for healthcare and what does it mean for, for our economy as a whole. I guess others like me are probably feeling a little bit queasy about their kidney at the moment. <laughs> but the equivalent comparison that you made with the automotive sector is quite an apt one. I think where they've broadly landed there is that there has to be human level of safety. But I guess the devil in the detail is how exactly you you define that. <laughs> in practice and when there's test cases and as you say even if there's a consensus within the bods within the industry doesn't mean that when an autonomous vehicle crashes and kills someone that the media isn't going to report it in a different way which they almost certainly will and the same will apply to healthcare the risk associated with this of course is the exogenous factors so i drive a tesla it's perfectly capable of safe taking me safely around a corner to come off a motorway i won't let it because i don't know what some fool around the corner might have done you know, in healthcare, it is a multiple variant environment, some of which are to do with other parts of the system not behaving rationally. And that's where humans forecasting what humans might do is a thing that we have a way to go before we get AI solved. And we talked here, Matthew, about the the opening up of training data. You've talked about how some of it can be sold and how it's sold and the NHS has various decisions to take there. <laughs> There's also, again, returning back to the theme we've talked about throughout this podcast is the question of who you are opening up to. And on the previous podcast, we had Professor Michael Waldridge from Oxford and the Turing Institute, and he argued very passionately that the UK needs sovereign capabilities for the deployment of large language models across the public sector for an industrial policy reason, to make sure that the UK does not rely entirely on foreign companies for providing these systems and this digital infrastructure. And he particularly cited healthcare. But what's your take on that? I mean, ultimately, what, what that would mean would be not allowing non-British firms to deploy certain types of AI training systems across the healthcare service and would essentially have to be by British. I mean, what do you... What do you what do you take on that? Is it is that is that sort of unfeasible, or is it something something more modest, such as we were talking about earlier, so avoiding locking effects through procurement contracts, ensuring that even if the providers foreign, that the 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 industrial policy outcomes and benefits are also in the UK. I'm struggling to make it make sense in a globalized economy. I think the the question of what is the economic benefits to the UK 
how do we create an environment where our entrepreneurs, our technologists, our engineers all have an opportunity to participate and we are driving the growth of the UK economy through it is a very valid question. The idea that we should nationalise the AI sector simply seems to me to be a a mechanism for ensuring that we end up 10 years behind. If we're going to do that, we ought to nationalise the MRI manufacturing uh, sector and refuse to buy them from GE and Toshiba and and Siemens and decide to open factories. We haven't done that for any other part of the high tech that we use in healthcare or indeed any other industry. We don't insist that our armed forces only buy guns manufactured in the UK. You know, so... So I, and there's good reasons why, why we don't do that. So the question is, how do you create an environment whereby it is a driver for GDP in the UK as well as an accelerator for a better NHS, not how do we shut this down so that innovation in the UK is, is not subjected to the innovative challenges of participating in a global market? We don't need the British Leyland of AI in our NHS whilst the rest of the world has got So a call to arms, I guess, again, for an industrial activist, industrial strategy in UK health tech policy, but without it being especially nativist and involving the locking out of competitors from from other markets. So Matthew, look, thank you. I think we've covered a broad broad sweep of the agenda there much more we could go into and maybe we will go into in future episodes but thanks very much for taking us through that and just for anyone on the line if you're interested in some of the issues which matthew's been talking us through today you'll find his details you'll find my details but you also find the wider details from our health practice on our website which is www global-council.com so please get in touch if you've got any questions and we'll come back to you swiftly thanks for joining matthew and thanks for everyone on the line and we'll see you next week bye-bye